Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 250 of Forgotten Classics. 250, I swear, when I started, if I'd have thought I'd do 250 episodes, I would have been too intimidated to even try it. That's why you just take baby steps, right? (laughs) I've enjoyed every one of these episodes. Hopefully you have too. So, episode 250, where we will be continuing with The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. First, usually I would have a podcast highlight, but you know, I have not really been listening to podcasts lately. I've been really concentrating on audiobooks and, oh, similar to audiobooks, a couple of classes that I've gotten from Audible. I told you about the Michael Droughtman, which was a science fiction one. Now I'm listening to one that he did called Rings, Swords, and Monsters. Or Rings, Monsters, and Swords. Anyway, something like that. But it's all about fantasy literature. And quite a few of the lectures so far have been about Tolkien. As he says, Tolkien is the basis from which most modern fantasy goes forward. He changed it substantially, so that's why he's concentrating on it. So, you know, I'm a Tolkien fan. I'm loving that. What I've been listening to is a lot of Sherlock Holmes, and I've mentioned that before recently, too. Derek Jacobi, oh my gosh, this guy is such an excellent reader. He is, uh, he does a wonderful Watson. He does a wonderful Holmes. And then when these various other people come in, he just starts throwing out all these accents and voices. And the stories themselves are good enough. As we know, they've stood the test of time, but he just really makes them wonderful. Also, I listened to Good Omens, which is a favorite book of mine, as I believe I've mentioned by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. It's about, of course, as most of us know, the apocalypse. And a dark angel and a good angel are both trying to stop it from happening because they like life on earth the way it is. They do not want the apocalypse to happen and everything to end. And it's funny and insightful. And oh my gosh, it's read by Martin Jarvis, I believe is the narrator's name. Holy moly, this guy is fantastic too. What a great reader he is. I've been listening to that in preparation for the next A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast, which will be in a couple of weeks, because I've read the book so many times. As I said, it's a favorite that I wanted to see what the audio was like. And in all but just a few cases, he really hit the nail on the head. So I can highly recommend that. And now I have finished the Sherlock Holmes short stories. I read a couple of books of them and I listened to all the rest once I found out that the library had most of them. Yay! But I'm going to read The Hound of the Baskervilles, a favorite of mine, for SFF Audio's podcast, which won't be for two or three weeks, I think. But I thought I'd take a little break from Sherlock Holmes. So I was casting around, not having a credit coming up on Audible, thinking, ah, I want to listen to something different, trying not to spend any extra money. It's so tempting. 
But then I realized, what about rereading, re-listening to an audiobook? And the one that really jumped out at me was White Cat by Holly Black, read by Jesse Eisenberg. And I believe I've raved to you about this before. Sorry, this is just a rereading, re-listening episode, isn't it? And <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, these things don't always stand up. You like them the first time around. You're not sure if you're going to like them when you hit them again. Does it have the depth? So I went ahead and loaded that on the old iPod, and I'm just a little ways into it, but already really enjoying it. Loving his reading, thinking, oh yes, I'd forgotten this very good world setup that Holly Black has done with the curse workers and everybody having to wear gloves so you can't be inadvertently cursed by someone touching you with their bare hand, and all the emphasis on conning people at the same time as we have this very much teenage story going on, young love and all that sort of thing. Love this book. So there you go. Three books in one instead of a podcast highlight. Grab one of those books and try them if you haven't, or reread one. And now back to The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. We are on our way. We are so close. Well, just outside the gates, right? Of the Yellow Devil's Den. Or actually, I think it's called the Yellow Devil's Nest. Can we rescue the fair maid? Can we overcome maybe a hundred people <laughs> or so? All bloodthirsty, all slave traders and horrible with Otter, a dwarf, an incredibly strong dwarf, but still, Soa, an incredibly old-seeming lady, but she obviously has a lot of endurance. And Leonard, who seems like he's pretty ingenious for just an Englishman stuck in a place where he's not native. Hmm. Well, we're going to find out. I do have a couple of phrases or new words for us to keep in mind. One is debouching, which is French meaning coming out of, as in a river, meaning from the French means out of, de, bouche, mouth. So coming out of the mouth of a river, emerging. The other is a phrase which I had to go look up, c'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. Now, I could translate that for you, meaning, well, it's magnificent, but it isn't war. I didn't understand the significance of the phrase. Evidently, this is a famous line, which in its entirety refers to the charge of the light brigade. The whole thing is, c'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre, c'est de la folie. Meaning, it's magnificent, but it isn't war, it's madness. Now, in this story, we only hear the first part Kind of much the same way that we'll say half of a phrase and expect the other people to know the other half. I think that would have been the spirit in which H. Ryder Haggard wrote that line. So now we know. When you hear me rattle off some strange sounding French, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Enough of that, though. Let's get down to it. Are you ready? Oh, I know you're ready. It's been way too long. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 10 
Leonard Makes a Plan The road which Leonard and his companions were following led them to the edge of the main and southernmost canal, debouching exactly opposite the water gate that gave access to the nest. But Otter did not venture to guide them to this point, for there they should be seen by the sentries, and notwithstanding their masquerade dress, awkward questions might be asked, which they could not answer. Therefore, when they had arrived within five hundred yards of the gate, he struck off to the left, into the thick bush that clothed the hither sides of the canal. Through this they crawled as best they might, till finally they halted near the water's edge, almost opposite to the southwest angle of the slave camp, and under the shadow of a dense clump of willows. "'See, boss,' said the dwarf in a low voice, "'the journey is accomplished, and I have brought you straight.' Yonder is the house of the yellow devil. Now it remains only to take it, or to rescue the maiden from it. Leonard looked at the place in dismay. How was it possible that they, two men and a woman, could capture this fortified camp, filled as it was with scores of the most wicked desperados in Africa? How was it possible even that they could obtain access to it? Viewed from far off, the thing had seemed small, to be done somehow. But now, and yet, they must do something, or all their labor would be in vain, and the poor girl they came to rescue must be handed over to her shameful fate, or, if she chose it in preference and could compass the deed, to self-murder. How on earth, said Leonard aloud, then added, "'Well, Otter, I can tell you one thing. "'I have come a long way on this business, "'and I am not going to turn my back to it now. "'I have never yet turned my back on a venture, "'and I will not begin with this, "'though I dare say that my death lies in it.' "'It is all in the hand of tomorrow,' answered Otter. "'But it is time that we made a plan, "'for the night draws on. "'Now, boss, here is a thick tree shaded by other trees.' "'Shall we climb it and look down into the camp?' Leonard nodded, and climbing the tree with ease, they peeped down through the leafiest of its boughs. All the camp lay beneath them like a map, and Otter, clinging monkey-wise to a branch, pointed out its details to Leonard. He had been a prisoner there, and the memories of prisoners are long. The place was peopled by numbers of men in strange costumes and of different nationalities, dealers in black ivory of various degree. Perhaps there may have been more than a hundred of them. Some were strolling about in knots, smoking and talking. Some were gambling. Others were going on their business. One group, captains, to judge from the richness of their attire, were standing round the almshouse and peeping through a grating in the wall, which they reached by sitting upon each other's shoulders. This amusement lasted them for some time, till at length a man, of whom at that distance they could see only that he was old and stout, came and drove them away, and they broke up laughing. "'That is the yellow devil,' said Otter. "'And those men were looking at the maid who is called the shepherdess. She is locked up there until the hour comes for her to be sold. They will be the bidders.' Leonard made no reply. He was studying the place. Presently a drum was beaten, and men appeared carrying large tin pails of smoking stuff. "'Yonder is the food for the slaves,' said Otter again. 
See, they are going to feed them. The men with the pails, accompanied by some of their officers having shamboks or hide whips in their hands, advanced across the open space till they came to the moat which separated the slave camp from the nest, whence they called to the entry on the embankment to let down the drawbridge. He obeyed, and they crossed. Each man with a bucket was followed by another who bore a wooden spoon, while a third behind them carried water in a large gourd. Having come to the first of the open sheds, they began their rounds, the man with the wooden spoon ladling out portions of the stiff porridge and throwing it down upon the ground to each slave in turn, as food is thrown to a dog. Then the Arab with the gourd poured water into wooden bowls that the captives might drink. Presently there was a halt, and the officers gathered together to discuss something. "'A slave is sick,' said Otter." The knot separated, but a big white man with a hippopotamus hide whip began to strike at a dark thing on the ground which did not seem to move. The man ceased beating and called aloud. Then two of the Arabs went to the little guardhouse that was by the drawbridge and brought tools with which they loosed the fetters on the limbs of the poor creature, apparently a woman, thus freeing her from the long iron bar. This done, some of the officers sauntering after them, they dragged the body to the high enclosure of earth and up a short ladder having a wooden platform at the top of it that overhung the deep canal below. "'This is how the yellow devil buries his dead and cures his sick,' said Otter. "'I have seen enough,' answered Leonard, and began to descend the tree hastily, an example which Otter followed with more composure." "'Ah, boss,' he said when they reached the ground. "'You are but a chicken. "'The hearts of those who have dwelt in slave camps are strong. "'And, after all, better the belly of a fish than the hold of a slave dow. "'Wow! "'Who do these things? "'Is it not the white men, your brothers? "'And do they not say many prayers to the great man up in the sky while they do them?' "'Be still.' said Leonard, and give me some brandy. He was in no mood to discuss the blessings of civilization as they have often been put into practice in Africa, and to think that this fate might soon be his own. Leonard drank the brandy and sat a while in silence, pushing up his beard with his hand and gazing into the gathering gloom with his hawk-like eyes. Thus he had sat beside his dying brother's bed, it was a pose that he adopted unconsciously when lost in thought. "'Come, Soa,' he said at length. "'We have travelled here to please you. Now give us the benefit of your suggestions. How are we going to get your mistress out of that camp?' "'Loose the slaves and let them kill their masters,' she answered laconically. "'I doubt there is not much pluck in slaves,' said Leonard. "'There should be fifty of Mavum's men there.' she replied, and they will fight well enough if they have arms. Then Leonard looked at Otter, seeking further ideas. My snake puts it into my head, said the dwarf. That fire is a good friend when men are few and foes are many. Also, that the reeds yonder are dry, and the sea wind rises and will blow hard before midnight. Moreover, all these houses are thatched, and in a wind fire jumps. But can a regiment have two generals? 
You are our captain, boss. Speak, and we will do your bidding. Here one counsel is as good as another. Let fate speak through your mouth. Very well, said Leonard. This is my plan. It goes a little further than yours, that is all. We must gain entrance to the nest while it is still dark, before the moon rises. I know the watchword, devil, and, disguised as we are, perhaps the sentry will let us pass unquestioned. If not, we must kill him, and silently. Good, said Otter. But how about the woman here? We will leave her hidden in the bush. She could be of no help in the camp, and might hinder us. No, white man, broke in Soa. Where you go, I go also. Moreover, my mistress is yonder, and I would seek her. As you like, answered Leonard, then went on. We must get between the hut, there is only one, and the low wall that borders the canal, separating the nest from the slave camp. And if the drawbridge is up and no other means can be found, we must swim the dike, dispose of the sentry there also, and gain the slave camp. Then we must try to free some of the slaves and send them round through the garden into the morass to fire the reeds, should the wind blow strong enough. Meanwhile, I propose to walk boldly into the camp, salute Pereira, pass myself off as a slaver with a dow at the mouth of the river, and say that I have come to buy slaves, and, above all, to bid for the white girl. Luckily, we have a good deal of gold. That is my plan, so far as it goes. The rest we must leave to chance." If I can buy the shepherdess, I will. If not, I must try to get her off in some other way. So be it, boss. And now let us eat, for we shall need all our strength tonight. Then we will go down to the landing place and take our chance. They ate of the food they had with them and drank sparingly of the slave dealer's brandy, saying little the while, for the shadow of what was to come lay upon them. Even the phlegmatic and fatalistic otter was depressed, perhaps because of the associations of the place, which for him were painful, perhaps because of the magnitude of their undertaking. Never had he known such a tale, never had he seen such an adventure as this, that two men and an old woman should attack an armed camp. Indeed, although he was not acquainted with the saying, otter's feelings would have been correctly summed up in the well-known phrase, C'est magnifique, mais ce n'est pas la guerre. As yet the night was intensely dark, and its gloom did not tend to improve their spirits. Also, as Otter had predicted, the wind was rising, and sighed through the reeds and willows in melancholy notes. So the time passed until it was nine o'clock. We must move down to the landing place, said Leonard. There will soon be some light, enough for us to work by. Then Otter took the lead, and slowly, step by step, they crept back to the road and followed it down the shore of the canal opposite the water gate. Here was a place where boats and canoes were tied, both for convenience in crossing the canal to and from the camp, and for the use of the slave dealers when they passed to the secret harbor six miles away, where the dows embarked their cargoes. They waited a while. From the nest came the sounds of revelry, and from the slave camp there rose other sounds. The voice of groaning broken by an occasional wail wrung out of the misery of some lost creature who lay there in torment. Gradually the sky brightened a little. Perhaps we had better be making a start, said Leonard. 
There's a canoe which will serve our turn. Before the words were out of his mouth, they heard the splash of oars, and a boat crept past them and made fast to the water gate twenty yards away. Who goes there? came the challenge of the sentry in Portuguese. Speak quicker, I fire. Don't be in such a hurry with your rifle, fool, answered a coarse voice. The very best of your friends goes here. An honest trader called Xavier who comes from his plantation on the coast to tell you all good news. Pardon, senor, said the sentry, but how is a man to see in the dark big as you are? What is the news, then? Are the dows in sight? Come down and help us to tie up this cursed boat, and I will tell you. You know where the post is, and we can't find it. The sentry obeyed with alacrity, and the man called Xavier went on, Yes, the dows are in sight, but I don't think they will get in tonight because of this wind, so you may look for a busy day tomorrow, loading up the blackbirds. One is in, by the way, a small one from Madagascar. The captain is a stranger, a big Frenchman named Pierre. Or he may be an Englishman, for anything I know. I hailed him and found out he's all right, but I didn't see him. However, I sent him a note to tell him there was fun on here tonight, which was generous of me, as he may be a rival bidder. Is he coming, senor? I ask, because if so, I must look out for him. I don't know. He answered that he would if he could. But how is the English girl? She is to be put up tonight, isn't she? Oh, yes, senor. There will be a great to-do at twelve when the moon is high. So soon as she has been bought, the priest Francisco is to marry her to the lucky man there and then. The old fellow insists on it. He has grown superstitious about the girl and says she shall be properly married. Xavier laughed aloud. <laughs> as he now, he is getting into his dotage. Well, what does it matter? We have a good law of divorce in these parts, friend. I'm going in for that girl. If I give a hundred ounces for her, I will buy her. And I have brought the gold with me. A hundred ounces for one girl. It is a large sum, senor. But you are rich. Not like us poor devils who get all the risk and little profit. By this time, the men had finished tying up the boat and taking some baggage or provisions out of her. Leonard could not see which. Then Xavier and the sentry went up the steps together, followed by the two boatmen, and the gates were shut behind them. Well, whispered Leonard, we have learnt something at any rate. Now, Otter, I am Pierre, the French slave trader from Madagascar, and, understand, you are my servant. As for Soa, she is the guide or interpreter, or anyone you like. We must pass the gates, but the real Pierre must never pass them. There must be no sentry to let him in. Do you think that you can manage it, Otter, or must I? It comes into my head, boss, that we may learn a lesson from this Xavier. I might forget something in the canoe, and a sentry might help me find it after you have passed the gates. For the rest, I am quick and strong and silent. Quick and strong and silent you must be, a noise, and all is lost. Then they crept to the canoe which they had selected, and loosened her. They embarked, and Otter took the paddle. First he let her float gently downstream and under cover of the shore for a distance of about fifty yards. Then he put about, and the play began. "'Now, you fool, where are you paddling to?' said Leonard in a loud voice to Otter, speaking in the bastard Arabic, which passes current for a language on this coast. "'You will have us into the bank, I tell you. Curse this wind and the darkness. Steady now, you ugly black dog!' Those must be the gates the letter told of. 
Are they not, woman? Hold on with the boat-hook, can't you? A wicket at the gate above rattled, and the voice of the sentry challenged them. A friend, a friend, answered Leonard in Portuguese. One who is a stranger and would pay his respects to your leader, Dom Antonio Pereira, with a view to business. What is your name? asked the guard suspiciously. Pierre is my name. Dog is the name of the dwarf, my servant, and as for the old woman, you can call her anything you like. The password, said the sentry. None come in here without the word. The word, ah, what did the Dom Xavier say it was in his letter? Fiend? No, no, I have it. Devil is the word. Where do you hail from? From Madagascar, where the goods you have to supply are in some demand just now. Come let us in. We don't want to sit here all night and miss the fun. The man began to unbar the door and stopped, struck by a fresh doubt. You're not of our people, he said. You speak Portuguese like a cursed Englishman. <laughs> no, I should hope not. I am a cursed Englishman, that is, half son of an English lord and a French creole, born in the Mauritius at your service, and let me ask you to be a little more civil, for cross-bred dogs are fierce. Now at length the sentry opened up one side of the gate, grumbling, and Leonard swaggered up the steps, followed by the other two. Already they were through it, when suddenly he turned and struck Otter in the face. Why, dog, he said angrily, you have forgotten to bring up the keg of brandy, my little present for the dom. Go and fetch it. Quick now. Pardon, chief, answered Otter. But I am a small man, and the keg is heavy for me alone, if you will deign to help me, for the old woman is too weak. Do you take me for a porter, that I should roll kegs of cognac up steps? Here, my friend, he went on, addressing the sentry. If you wish to earn a little present and a drink, perhaps you will give this fellow a hand with the cask. There is a spigot in it, and you can try the quality afterwards. Right, senor, said the man briskly, and led the way down the steps. A look of dreadful intelligence passed between the dwarf and his master. Then Otter followed, his hand upon the hilt of the Arab's saber which he wore, while Leonard and Soa waited above. They heard the man's heavily booted feet going down the steps, followed by Otter's naked footfall. "'Where's your keg? I don't see it,' said the sentry presently. "'Lean over, senor, lean over,' answered Otter. "'It is in the stern of the canoe. Let me help you.' There was a moment's pause. To the listeners it seemed hours. Then came the sound of a blow and a heavy splash. They hearkened on but nothing more was to be heard except the beating of their hearts and the distant noise of revelry from the camp. Three seconds passed, and Otter stood before them. In the dim light, Leonard could see that his eyes stared wide and his nostrils twitched. Quick was the blow, strong was the blow, silent is the man forever, whispered Otter. So the boss has commanded, so it is. Chapter 11. That Hero Otter Help me to secure the gate, said Leonard presently. In another minute, the great iron bar had been dropped into its place, and Leonard withdrew the key and put it in his pocket. Why do you secure the door, boss? whispered Otter. To keep the real Pierre out, in case he should come this way, 
two peers would be one too many at this gate. Now we must win or perish. Then they crept along the embankment, till they gained the shelter of the hut or barrack shed which stood with its back to the dike that separated the nest from the slave camp. Happily none saw them, and there were no dogs in the place. Dogs make a noise at inconvenient times, therefore slave dealers do not love them. The end of the shed behind which they were crouching was situated some eight or ten paces from the drawbridge that formed the only path of entry to the slave camp. Bus, said Otter, let me go forward and look. My eyes are the eyes of a cat. I can see in the dark. Perhaps the bridge is down. Without waiting for an answer, he crept forward on his hands and knees so quietly that they could scarcely hear a movement. Notwithstanding his white dress, there was little chance of his being seen, for the shadow of the shed was dense, and a fringe of rushes grew along the edge of the dike. Five minutes passed, ten minutes passed, and Otter did not return. Leonard's anxiety grew very keen. "'Let us go and see what happened, mother,' he whispered to Soa. They crept along to the end of the shed. Within a yard of it, they discovered the arms and clothes of Otter." But Otter, where was he? The black one has deserted us, said Soa beneath her breath. Never, answered Leonard. By now the clouds were breaking before the wind, which was rising steadily, and some stars shone out, giving a little light. The dike lay deep between its banks, and was not more than twenty feet in width, so that the air did not ruffle it. Moreover, as any observer of nature will have noticed, the surface of still water is never quite dark, even on much blacker nights than this. Why had Otter taken off his clothes, Leonard wondered, evidently that he might go into the water. And what could he want to go into the water for, unless it was that his heart failed him, and, as so it suggested, he had deserted? But this was impossible, for he knew well that the dwarf would die first. In his great perplexity, Leonard stared at the dike. Now he could see that on its further side rose a flight of wooden steps, protected at the top by gates, and that a man was seated on the lowest step with a rifle beside him, his feet hanging down to within a few inches of the surface of the dike. It must be the sentry. Next instant, Leonard saw something else. Beneath the feet of the man a ripple grew on the face of the deep water, and something gleamed in the ripple like to the flash of steel. Then a small black object projected itself toward the feet of the sentry, who was half asleep and humming to himself drowsily. Suddenly he saw the man slide from his seat as though by magic. He said nothing, but making one ineffectual grasp at some rushes, he vanished into the deeps below. For a minute or more, Leonard could distinguish a slight disturbance on the surface of the water, and that was all. Now he guessed what had happened. Otter had dived, and rising beneath the feet of the man, he seized him, and with a sudden movement dragged him down to death by drowning. Either this or an alligator had taken him, and that flash was the flash of his fangs. As Leonard thought thus, a dark form rose, gasping, at the foot of the steps. It drew itself out of the water and slipped stealthily up them. It was Otter, and he held a knife in his hand. Now the dwarf vanished through the gates into the little guardhouse at the top of the embankment. 
Another minute, and ropes began to creak. Then the tall drawbridge, standing upright like a scaffold against the sky, was seen to bend itself forward. Down it came, very softly, and the slave camp was open to them. Again the black shape appeared, this time on the bridge. "'Come along,' whispered Leonard to his companion. "'That hero otter has drowned the sentry and won the bridge. Stop, pick up his clothes and arms.' At that moment, Otter himself arrived. Quick, he said. Come over, boss, before they see the bridge is down. Give me my clothes and a gun. All right, here they are, answered Leonard. And in another minute, they were over the bridge and standing on the parapet of the slave camp. Into the guardhouse, boss. The windlass is there, but no man. They entered. A lamp was burning in the place. Otter seized the handle of the windlass and began to wind. He was naked, and it was a wonderful sight to see the muscles starting out in knots on his huge but dwarfish frame as he strained at the weight of the bridge. Presently it was up, and leaning on the handle of the wheel, Otter chuckled aloud. <laughs> now we are safe for a time, he said, and I will dress myself. Let the boss forgive me for appearing thus before him, I who am so ugly. Tell us the tale, Otter. It is short, boss, the dwarf replied as he put on his robe and turban. When I left you I watched, I who can see in the dark, and in a little while I saw the guard come down the steps and sit by the edge of the water. He was sleepy, for he yawned and lit a roll of paper to smoke it. Presently it went out, and he had no more matches. He looked up to the house there, but was too lazy to fetch them. Then I guessed he was alone, for else he would have called to his companion for fire. Now he grew sleepier, and I said to myself, Otter, Otter, how can you kill this man silently? You must not shoot because of the noise, and if you throw a knife or a spear you may miss or wound him only. And my snake spoke in my heart and answered, Otter, otter, dive, seize his feet and drag him down swiftly and stamp him into the mud. You who are half a fish and can swim as no other man can swim, do it at once, otter, before the light comes and men can see the drawbridge move. Well, and so I did it, boss. Wow! I trod him deep into the mire. I trampled him as an ox tramples corn upon a threshing floor. Never will he come up again. After that, I rose and ran into the guardhouse, fearing lest there might be another whom I must silence also. For when I was a slave, two always kept watch. But the place was empty, so I let the bridge down. Ha <laughs> ha! I remembered how it worked. And that is the tale, boss. A great tale, Otter, but it is not finished yet. Now let us to the slaves. Come, take the light and lead the way. Here we are safe, is it not so? Here, boss, we are safe, for none can reach us except by storm, and yonder is the big gun which turns upon itself. Let us twist the gun round first, so, if need be, we can fire into the camp. I don't know much of cannon, said Leonard doubtfully. But I know something, white man, said Soa, speaking for the first time. Ma Voom, my master, has a small one up at the settlement, 
and often I have helped fire it for practice, and as a signal to boats on the river, and so have many of the men who were carried away, if we can find them yonder. Good, said Leonard. A path ran along the top of the embankment to the platform on which the gun was mounted. It was a six-pounder muzzle loader. Leonard unhooked the rammer and ran it down the muzzle. She is loaded, he said. Now let us swing her round. They did so easily enough, bringing the muzzle down upon the nest camp. Then they entered the little hut which stood alongside, piled up in it, in case of emergency, were a half-dozen rounds of grape-shot and powder. "'Lots of ammunition if we should want to use it,' said Leonard. "'It never occurred to those gentlemen that a gun can shoot two ways. "'And now, Otter, lead us to the slaves, quick.' "'This way, boss. But first we must find the tools. "'They're in the guard-hut, I suppose.' "'So they crept back to the hut.' holding their heads as low as possible, for the light was increasing, although the moon was not yet up, and they feared lest they should be seen against the skyline. Here they found boxes containing nippers, chisels, and other instruments, such as are used to undo the irons upon slaves. Also they found the keys of the padlocks that locked the iron bars to which the captives were tethered. Taking a lantern with them, but leaving another burning as before in the hut, lest its absence should excite suspicion, they passed through two strong gates and down the steps on the further side of the embankment. A few paces beyond stood the first slave shed, a rough erection supported on posts, but without sides. They entered the shed, Otter leading the way with the lantern. In the middle of it was a path, and on either side of this path ran the long bars to which the captives were fastened in a double row. Perhaps there might have been two hundred and fifty of them in this shed. Here the sights and scenes were such as need not be described. Of the miserable captives, some lay on the wet ground, men and women together, trying to forget their sorrows in sleep. But the most part of them were awake, and the sound of moans ran up and down their lines like the moaning of trees in the wind. When they saw the light, the slaves ceased moaning, and crouched upon the ground like dogs that await the whip, for they thought that this was a visit from their captors. Some of them indeed stretched out their manacled hands, imploring mercy, but these were the exceptions. The most of them had abandoned hope, and were sunk in dull despair. It was pitiful to see the glance of their terror-filled eyes and the answering quiver of their wheeled frames whenever an arm was lifted or a sudden movement made. Soa went down the line, rapidly examining the faces of the slaves. "'Do you see any of Mavoom's people?' asked Leonard anxiously. "'Not here, white man. Let us go to the next shed, unless you want to loose these.' "'No good in that, mother.' said Otter. They would only betray us. So they went to the next shed. In all there were four, and here at the second man who was sleeping, his head bowed on his chained hands, Soa stopped suddenly like a pointer dog when he sensed game. Peter, Peter, she said. The man awoke. He was a fine fellow about thirty years of age, and glared round wildly. Who called me by my old name? He said hoarsely, "'Nay, I dream Peter is dead.' "'Peter,' said the woman again. 
Awake, child of Mavum, it is I, Soa, who am come to save you. The man cried aloud and began to tremble, but the other slaves took no notice, thinking only that he had been smitten with a scourge. Be silent, said Soa again, or we are lost. Loose the bar, black one. This is a headman from the settlement, a brave man. Soon the bar was undone. Then Otter bade Peter hold out his wrists while he twisted off the fetters. Presently they were gone, and in the ecstasy of his recovered liberty the man leaped high into the air, then fell at Otter's feet as though he would embrace them. "'Get up, you fool,' said the dwarf roughly. "'And if there are any more of the men of Mavum here, show them to us quick, or you will soon be fast again.' "'There should be forty or more,' Peter answered, recovering himself. "'Besides a few women and children.' The rest of us are dead, except the shepherdess alone, and she is yonder. Then they went down the lines, slipping the chains from the settlement captives. Soon they had unmanacled ten or more men whom Soa selected, and others stood round them with their hands still chained. As they went about the work, Soa explained something of the position to Peter, who fortunately was a native of intelligence. He grasped the situation at once and earnestly seconded Leonard's efforts to preserve silence and prevent confusion. "'Come,' said Leonard to Soa. "'We have got enough to begin with. I must be off. You can loose the rest at your leisure. The moon is rising. It is a quarter to twelve, and we have not a moment to lose. Now, Otter, before we go, how can we send men to fire the reeds? Through the garden?' "'No, boss. I have thought of a better way.' the way by which I escaped myself. That is, if these men can swim. They can all swim, said Soa. They were bred on the banks of a river. Good. Then they must swim down the dike where I killed the sentry, four of them. At the end are bars of wood, but in my day they were rotten. At the worst, they can be climbed. Then they will find themselves in the morass among thick reeds. But they must not fire these until they have worked round to the place of the sunrise, whence the wind blows strongly. Then they must go from spot to spot and bend down the driest of the reeds, setting fire to them. Afterwards they can get to the back of the fire and wait till all is done one way or the other. If we win, they will find us. If we are killed, they can try to run away. But will the men go? Soa stepped forward and chose four of their number, but Peter she did not choose, for he also knew something of the working of cannon. Listen, she said. You have heard the words of this black one. Now obey. And if you depart from them by one jot, maybe. And she poured out so fearful a curse upon them that Leonard stared at her astonished. Aye, added Otter. And if I live through this, I will cut your throats. No need to threaten, said one of the men. We will do our best for our own sakes, as well as for yours and that of the shepherdess. We understand the plan, but to light reeds, we must have fire. Here are matches, said Otter. Wet matches will not light, and we must swim, answered the spokesman. Fool, do you then swim with your head under water? Tie them in your hair. Ah, he is clever, said the spokesman. Now if we live to reach them, when shall we fire the reeds? 
as soon as you are ready, answered Otter. You will not come easily to the back of them. Farewell, my children, and if you dare to fail, pray that you may die rather than to look on my face again. Oh, we have seen it once. Is that not enough? answered the spokesman, looking at Otter's huge nose with wonder, not untouched by fear. Two minutes later, the four men were swimming swiftly down the dike, taking their chance of the alligators. Drop the bridge, said Leonard. We must start. Otter lowered it, at the same time explaining its mechanism, which was very simple, to Soa, Peter, and some of the other settlement men. Now, mother, good-bye, said Leonard. Loose all the men you can, and keep a keen lookout so as to be ready to lower the bridge if you should see us or your mistress coming toward it. If we have not come by dawn, be ready also, for then we shall probably be dead or prisoners, and you must act for yourselves. I hear you, Lord, answered Soa, and I say you are a brave man. Whether you win or lose, the red stone is well earned already. Another minute, and they were gone. Having crossed the bridge, which was instantly hoisted again, Leonard and Otter avoided observation by creeping back toward the water gate as they had come, that is, behind the shelter of the shed. Emerging from this, they ran a few yards until they were opposite the gate, then walked leisurely across the open space, a distance of fifty paces or more, to the thatched hut where the sale of slaves was carried on. There was nobody in this hut, but looking between the posts upon which it was supported, they could see by the light of the moon, now growing momentarily clearer, that a great and uproarious concourse of people was gathered beyond in front of the veranda of the nest itself. "'Come on, Otter,' whispered Leonard. "'We must go among these gentry. Watch me closely. Do what I do. Keep your weapons ready. And if it comes to blows, get behind my back and fight like a fiend. Above all—' Don't be taken prisoner. Leonard spoke calmly, but his heart was in his mouth, and his sensations were such as must have been known to Daniel when he went into the lion's den, for as in the case of the prophet, he felt that nothing short of a special providence could save them. They were round the shed now, and immediately in front of them was a mixed gathering of desperadoes, Portuguese, Arabs, bastards, and black men of various tribes, such as Leonard had never seen in all his experience. Villainy and greed were written on every countenance. It was a crew of human demons, and an extensive one. These wretches, most of whom had drunk too freely already, and were drinking more, stood with their backs to them, looking toward the veranda of the nest. On the steps of this veranda, surrounded by a choice group of companions, all of them gaudily dressed, a man was standing whom Leonard would have no difficulty in identifying as the Dom Pereira, even without Otter's whispered warning of, See, the yellow devil! This remarkable person demands some description as he stood in glory that night, at the apex and, though he knew it not, the conclusion of his long career of infamy. He was old, perhaps seventy, his hair was white and venerable-looking, and his person obese. His black eyes were small, cunning, cold, and bright, and they had the peculiarity of avoiding the face of any person with whom he chanced to be in conversation, at least when that person was looking his way. Their glance passed over him, 
under him, round him, anywhere but at him. As his sobriquet suggested, the coloring of Pereira's flesh was yellow, and the loose skin hung in huge wrinkles upon his cheeks. His mouth was large and coarse, and his fat hands twitched and grasped continually, as though with the desire of clutching money. For the rest, he was gorgeously dressed, and, like his companions, somewhat in liquor. Such was the outward appearance of Pereira, the fountainhead of the slave trade on this part of the coast, who was believed in his day to be the very worst man in Africa, a preeminence to which few can hope to attain. Until his face had been seen, stamped as it was with traces of long and unmentionable wickedness, few honest men could guess to what depths humanity can sink. Some, indeed, have declared that to see him was to understand the evil one and all his works. Okay, now we are well and truly on the threshold of adventure. I really wanted to put in the next chapter because I myself was a bit frustrated by stopping when I was proofing <laughs> at the spot we did, but I thought it's taken me for some reason so long to get this episode out. I wanted to get this out so you had something to listen to and hopefully I'll get the next one out a bit more quickly. A couple of things that I found interesting were Leonard didn't have a plan. He wasn't one of these people who just, oh, well, now we'll do this. He wanted to know what Soa thought. He wanted to know what Otter thought. And he took those things and wound them into a bigger plan. So it's teamwork and it's not him going around bossing everybody around because he thinks he knows the best thing to do. So that's kind of an interesting trait in a main character. Then I was also very interested in Otter's little sarcastic speech about, as H. Ryder Haggard called them, the blessings of civilization, where he talked about the slavers who, you know, go around praying and acting as if they're so holy and wonderful and they're causing all this human misery. Nice touch that Otter's the one who pointed it out and Leonard, who seems to treat him fairly much as an equal in these sorts of things, didn't have an answer. So I liked both those points. Obviously, next time we are up for high adventure. I don't really have anything else going on. It's one of those odd periods where everybody I run into who I haven't seen for a while say, how are you doing? What's going on? And they kind of stop and say, what's really good? Everything's fine now. And so they look kind of puzzled by that as if it's odd to have everything going great, which of course is a true blessing. And that's what's going on with me. Everything's going great. The weather's fairly spring-like. The kids are good. The dogs are good. My work is good. You know, what can I say? And I already told you about everything I'm reading. And of course, the other thing that's good is that you come by to listen. I really appreciate it because I definitely would not be reading this out loud for any other reason. <laughs> and I am, as always, enjoying it a lot. So thank you very much. Glad you came by and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.